I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Best Bookshelf podcast after quite a long break. University took over for a while there and I wanted to have a proper think about what direction I want this podcast to go in. So today I'm back finally and I have the wonderful Jess Phillips with me. Jess is a really exciting guest to have on the podcast because she's a very busy woman and that means she has a lot to talk about. Jess is a Labour Party politician and MP for Birmingham Yardley. She's also an author, a feminist, an equalities campaigner and a mother. Before becoming a politician, Jess also managed the domestic abuse charity Women's Aid, who help women and children escape violent situations. Much of these experiences from her many roles are present in her book, Every Woman, which is a bestseller and I've just finished it. I absolutely love the book, it's hilarious, so of course I had to get her on the podcast so she could chat about all of that today. That was a very long introduction and yet I haven't even scraped the surface of all the amazing things Jess does. She's truly inspired me and so many others to take a bigger interest in politics and I learned a lot from her just in this one hour interview, so I hope you enjoy. So, um, I've just finished reading Every Woman, and I really liked it. I've, oh, I've never... you have to say that, but that's kind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... To be fair, I've, I've never called someone and said I didn't like their book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be rude, so don't do that. <laughs> it's the first book by a politician that I've read. And I loved that it was so raw and brought this very real side to the female politician because I feel like a lot of people's representation of the female politician is very much Theresa May and coldness yeah. equals power and <laughs> that sort of thing. But you're like not afraid to be funny and I really love that because oh. there seems to be this weird thing where women, especially in professional roles, aren't allowed to be funny. Well, I think that that a lot of that, and I think um, I think women actually probably lots of women, especially from potentially uh, an older generation, um, have made that conscious decision that they have to be serious because if you're not taken seriously already because of a million other things, you don't want to give people the opportunities to then not take you seriously again. Um, and so the sort of the idea of humour um, was put to one side and uh, sort of banter was for other people and women had to be serious and good at their jobs to prove their worth in a sort of sex 
this system. Um, and so it is a big risk, actually, I think, trying to be funny or allowing yourself to sort of be humiliated or laughed at because already people don't take you um, seriously. But I think that it's democratising. I think humour is democratising. Everybody likes a laugh and everybody pokes fun at themselves. And I think that you can build up a rapport with a group of people or masses of people without actually ever having to meet them if you can make people laugh I think it is the quickest and simplest way to build up a rapport with somebody so it is a, a device as much as um, a device for sort of democracy that I think people don't use enough oh that's a brilliant way of looking at it <laughs> I never thought of it as an actual device in yeah. politics but it can... puts people at ease doesn't it if you laugh yeah. immediately everyone's like oh hang on we're all we're all you know yeah. We all go to the loo. We all, you know, <laughs> we're all normal human beings. We can, we all make a fool of ourselves sometimes, and it, it humanises you. Yeah, we all laugh and we all poo. That's a direct <laughs> quote from Jess Phillips. Can be my my, my uh, epitaph. <laughs> um, what was your main motivation for going into politics? Then was it pretty much what you? just said because your humour creates the relatable politician in my yeah opinion. I mean I wanted I mean there, I had lots of it's no, there's no one simple answer is the truth I wanted to get involved with politics at the time that I did uh, for a number of reasons I suppose the, the main inspiring fact was the fact that we had a Tory government again which we haven't had since I was 16 and I started to see how the, the people I worked with who were women in refuge and children uh, with mental health problems and people who'd suffered terrible abuses, I started to see how poor policy decision-making was affecting their lives and I started to feel the unfairness that had existed when I was a child. I started to feel it and notice it again. And so that is, I think, at the time when I decided to do something was because I was cross. I was angry and ang anger is a great inspire um so that was one of the reasons but i suppose once i decided that i would i had to try and do something once i decided that that's what i was going to do i also made a conscious decision that i wanted people to believe in politics again politics is at a really low ebb and certainly in 2010 was at its lowest ebb of trust in politicians. We were on the back of the financial crisis. We were on the back of the scandal about um, MPs' expenses and, you know, the sort of hatred of politicians and the, the establishment um, was so high. And what I saw was that actually that is bad for the people, not for the politicians. Politicians carried on regardless. didn't make any difference that people hated them. They carried on doing their jobs. They carried on making the decisions. But it's bad if people disengage from politics. It's bad for individuals if they think, oh, there's nobody there to help me. This isn't about me. You're all the same. That is bad for democracy. And so I decided once, I, once I'd sort of been inspired to get involved that I was going to make a conscious effort to try and be human and be relatable. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. <laughs> you are the only politician I can think of that I really see that with and actually I think 
yeah, controversial as he is. Jeremy Corbyn's brought a little bit of that in. Yeah, yeah, year, I think that's, and that's what people that's what people like mm. um, about Jeremy is the, the relatability. And in the election campaign, the 2017 general election campaign, that n- never more did that matter than it mattered then. So it wasn't just me noticing this. This isn't not because I'm some sort of savant. It was <laughs> that there was there is a general feeling in society in 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 British society now that people want humanity um, and they they want to see you feel and in the general election you couldn't have had two more different it wasn't just two sort of slick men in suits standing up saying slick things it was one very authoritarian figure who was very closed off and one very relaxed figure who was you know yeah maybe we make mistakes you know people make mistakes that sort of thing and that is and that 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 definitely will have helped people the difference that they could see will yeah. have helped what happened in the results for the Labour Party anyway, not for the Conservatives. Yeah, his humanity did carry him through. And oh, definitely his personality carried him through. Personality obviously matters clearly. The results show that because you know the Tories may have ultimately won, but it's not like they won by a landslide, was it? Like, uh, well, and really, it's, it's an election nobody won, isn't it? Because they lost their position. Yeah. Everybody lost something. Um, nobody, you know, and, and, and gains were made by both sides, but not con- not convinced, not just both sides, but the, all sides, the Liberal Democrats, I think only, the only people who didn't make any new seats were the SNP. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's an election nobody won. The British public won, in my opinion. The British public won by just saying, all of you, you know, we didn't want this election. We're going to send you back with basically what you've got, and then that will show you. Good <laughs> yeah. on the British public, but that's what that's what I wanted. I wanted to see the British public being part of the process. I wanted to see more people taking part. I wanted people to feel like it was their election, not an election that belongs to six hundred and fifty people in suits. Yeah. And so, so it, in many ways, whilst the outcome of the election is still very up in the air and what will happen governance-wise is confusing. very complicated. I've never, I've never had to do so much Googling to see what <laughs> things were in an election. <laughs> I know. I think it's a bit like there was like 100 million Googles of the word hung parliament. Yeah, yeah. They were all from me. <laughs> the DUP. Everybody had to look up who the DUP were. I know, I knew who they were. I was terrified, but... Um... <laughs> Yeah, all those Googles of hung parliament was me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was to be some MPs who were looking at what happened in hung parliament. Um, because it's, it's, it's uncharted waters in our generation anyway, you know. So my dad will sit and talk about, you know, the 70s when this was uh, what happened. And there was an election every 15 minutes. Um, but, you know, to to somebody born of decades of rule by one party or another... It is a complex time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, before you went into politics, you worked at Women's Aid, did you? Did. Was it Women's Aid? You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked but, at Samuel Women's Aid, which is one of the Women's Aids in the West Midlands. What was it like working there? What made you want to take on that role before politics became a part of your life? Well, I mean, politics has always been a part of my life, and one of the biggest, I suppose, forces in my politics 
was feminism. I was raised, uh, you know, I went to my playgroup that I went to, it was the Women's Liberation Playgroup. So I was raised by the women's movement, essentially, um, my mum being one of the sort of caftan-wearing... It sounds amazing. ...1970s (laughs) sort of rebellion. Um, You you say it sounds amazing. It was basically (laughs) cold church halls and cut-up oranges. It was just like any playgroup. It's just that the women were radical and went off to Greenham Common and things. To me, it was just, you know, playing with bricks and knocking them over, just like every kid. It's not like we were being radicalised. And there was a whole big thing about Momentum Kids recently where Momentum had put on a question. People were like, oh, my God, they're radicalising young minds. And I think they're probably just eating soggy toast. That's what we did. (laughs) That's what we did. I remember Fluella Benjamin from Play School came once. That was about as exciting as it got. Um, But the um, the, the idea that you can radicalise a two-year-old, a two-year-old won't listen to you for more than one minute. Um, True story. It's quite frankly hilarious, but there we go. Um, But um, so feminism had always been like a, a backstop to any political ideology that I had. And I was raised by two very, very strong feminists, my parents. And um, so I had always been aware of the power imbalance, the issue of women um, being abused um, by their partners, by their families, and having a lesser role in society. Um, and so when I took the job at Women's Aid, I actually took like a £10,000 pay cut because I just really, really wanted to have a job doing something like that and it was a huge opportunity so it was but it was brilliant it's a brilliant place to work people would I used to go to like sort of fundraising dinners and things or Labour Party things as I'd got more involved with the Labour Party and people do this sort of what I call cancer face where they sort of slightly tilt their head to one side and look sad when you tell them what you do so (laughs) you know I I work in a domestic violence refuge or I work in a rape crisis centre and people do this face like you're a saint like oh gosh what a good oh that must be hard work and actually the reality is that you are dealing in hope you are working with brilliant people who laugh all day the women and the children are you know you could write a million books the amount of characters that you meet um doing that job and it is just it was a lovely lovely empowering place to work and you know i think everybody should work in sort of the voluntary sector in sort of a sort of ramshackle organization where people have to pull together it's it's a great lesson in life that sounds amazing it was amazing i mean obviously there every single day there are harrowing stories to be told and part of my job because i was there to get in funding and develop services part of my job was to hear those stories and retell them and i've always been good at storytelling and to capture people's stories and retell them it can be very harrowing however the the vast majority of work that went on where i worked was helping those people to get out away from what had happened to them and you'd come up against systems that would block you out and you can't get a mental health bed for a kid who's been sexually exploited you can't get an assessment for two and a half years there were all these things that make you angry and cross when you're there but most of the time it is just a sort of riotous place where you know every day you're thinking of something crazy you can do in refuge like let's have a summer scheme and let's get all the kids doing races and you know at Christmas time it would be like the place was like a fortress, the amount of donations that you would get. There was one factory, like, in sort of completely sort of hideous industrial bit of, like, cradley heath in the black country, yeah. and they would donate 
thousands of pounds. And we'd say to them, you can just give us the money and we'll spend it on the presents. But the, the, the blokes from the factory loved going to Toys R Us and just buying like hundreds of boxes of Operation or, you know, sort of Buckaroo. And they loved going and buying the presents and thinking of kids opening those presents on, on Christmas Day. And so for every terrible story, there is a story of immense hope and resilience and uh, and a community looking after each other. So it is a great place to work. I miss it desperately. I was just going to ask if you miss it because <laughs> you sound so passionate day. talking about yeah. it. I miss it every day. I mean, I deal with the very similar sort of caseload here in my office now um, with far fewer resources um, and so you still hear all the stories but the hope is far 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 less um, in an MP's office you can help people and you can do as much as you can do but the level of support that was offered to women by those charities and children and you know all charities offering all sorts of things to all sorts of different people it's unrivaled it's unrivaled and we can only sort of move pieces of paper around and hope that the system picks people up but so I do miss it I do I miss the fun part of it I miss the Christmas parties and the you know Eid celebrations we'd we'd celebrate literally any even if there's like one person who'd once been a client who was like (laughs) Baha'i we're like well we have to celebrate the Baha'i festival so we'd we'd celebrate everything it's brilliant so you you definitely haven't stopped working in that area. It's just sort of changed no. The environment. No, and... uh, no, that's right. It's a different environment. Yeah. Now I do it in Parliament. <laughs> I tell those people's stories in Parliament, and and arguably I affect far, far, far more women with the work that I do now. Um, so it's still, and the sector gets in touch with me near daily and tells me how proud they are to have me there speaking up for them so that is lovely yeah i suppose it gives you a lot of um a whole archive of very real stories to throw at people when they argue things aren't needed because there's always that one person who's like this isn't necessary we don't need to employ this into the government and you can be like well actually i mean it really does it really 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 does there is i have i have an archive of stories that will keep me going for the for the if i was in parliament for 50 years i would still be able to call on a woman's story to tell how the government was doing something wrong (laughs) (laughs) it is it is all doing something right and they, they get some things right this government on domestic violence there's no two ways about that um but yeah it, it is a rich tapestry and oh yeah you, i will have it forever i think sometimes you know i think in the christmas recess i go back to refuge and i'm i touch base with all the people and sometimes i think oh, i'm just going to go and do a week of shifts because <laughs> you have to keep you because you know the world moves on so quickly um, but there are some fundamental truths in a women's refuge. Women are still shat on, essentially. They're still more likely to be murdered by their husbands. Uh, you know, they're much less likely to have the financial capability to stand on their own two feet when they first come in. And those things will never change in my lifetime, I can't imagine. But we have to keep trying. That was... Um about to be my next question because we obviously met at a panel for Mm -hmm. the International Women's Day hosted by Refuge. Do you find it strange that in 2017 we're still having to have International Women's Day panels where we talk about violence and the violence we've experienced? Yeah, I mean it's it's terrible. Um, Does it dishearten you or does it motivate you? Or does that depend on the day? It motivates me. And also, (laughs) I mean, actually I went to this festival at the weekend 
um, it's called the Wilderness Festival, and I was speaking at it. I was only there for uh, sort of 24 hours. But just as I was leaving, um, there was a band on stage. I mean, I'm going to terribly show my... I mean, I, I can't even remember. I think they were called, like, First Aid or something. Anyway, uh, I, I'm, I've been a mum for 12 years, so I, I don't know anything about anything <laughs> anymore. Uh, I'm definitely not cool. And um, the, this woman was, was sort of like a folk band, and they were, it was sounded really good, and I was only listening from a distance, but she stood on the front of the stage, and she said she talked about a rape case to the audience, a famous rape case in America where a young woman had been raped behind a dumpster outside a party. I think it was in Texas. And in the court case for the young man who'd admitted that it, it had happened, he then, he, the judge said this, that this young man was very bright, he was going to Yale or something. Uh, and he um, had a very bright the, future. The Stanford case. Yeah, yeah. And, and this woman had written this song. And so, and just before she, she went on to sing the song, she told the story of the rape case to the audience. And and this was like ten thousand people in a field, and and she said, and what we want to say to that rapist is, you're the problem, not the young woman. It's you that's the problem, not our culture. It's you. And the whole audience literally cheered this woman saying this. And I felt I, I was st- stood way, way, way back, like trying to put my kids on a Ferris wheel sort of thing. And I stopped for a minute, and I I, I nearly burst into tears because this cheering at the idea that it was a rapist's fault and that it was nothing to do with the fact that the girl was drunk was being cheered by this audience. And I thought, 10 years ago, that didn't exist. That anger and aggression, that upset about these sorts of cases, just, it wasn't as 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 mainstream as it is now. And I said to my husband, oh, you know, it's brilliant that this crowd is engaged with this story and that they're talking about it. And my husband turned to me and he said, people like you did that, Jess. People like you carried on talking about it. People like you and all those feminist activists, you kept on going and it is getting better, it is getting better. Feel like it is getting better. Feel like this crowd of people, they're not going to stand for that if their sons do it. Feel like they're going to, you know, their daughters are going to have a better life and that's because of people like you. And I just, I just, that made me feel brilliant that even though progress seems so damningly slow and the stubborn nature of the statistics around one in five women will be sexually assaulted and, you know, two women are murdered every week and one in three women will suffer domestic abuse. Those remain stubbornly high and they have not really changed in my lifetime. There is a cultural change occurring and it might be slow, but we have to we have to pat ourselves on the back for the small bits of progress. But so in twenty seventeen we should be far, far, far ahead, but we, we can't give up because we are making progress. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think, like you said, the statistics are still harrowing, but I think what's changed most significantly is bystanders' attitude. People, yeah. people who are not not abusers nor yeah, the abused not victims but, yeah you know I still occasionally normally from older people when like because obviously I've done a few like sort of public speaking mm. about what I'd been through I still get the odd why didn't you just leave but yeah. to me that's ignorance due to lack of information rather than feeling that I deserve yeah and people people say it to protect themselves I mean I said this in the book it's like people people say that not because they um because they are trying to be mean or even consciously trying to blame you, for example. But they believe that you have to have some control over it and them believing that means that protects them, that makes them think, well, that would never happen to me because I would do this, this and the other. And it's just the human condition is to believe that these things can't happen to you um, and because you would behave differently. And, and, And it's just people's way of protecting themselves. It's like when people say something religious if somebody's died even if you're not religious they say well you know your mum's in heaven now and I think well that's just to make you feel better because you don't know what to say that's nothing to do with how I feel about it and actually you've just said that to make you feel better and they're not being mean they're actually being kind but it's about them so when people say those sorts of things to you just remember that you're a bit superior to them and you have a better understanding (laughs) if it makes you feel better yeah well I've always sort of seen it as that person needs um correcting not arguing with yeah like, absolutely you don't need to answer something as small as that with oh my god you arsehole well actually and then yeah, yeah, yeah like you well, said absolutely. your archive of stories <laughs> yeah that's it exactly and i suppose in the book i tried to use the example that people don't even leave their mobile phone in a fire alarm so if a fire alarm goes off, um, people will get up their bags and they will get yeah. all of their belongings. They will pick them up, even though everybody knows you're meant to just get up and leave. You're not meant to try and find your things. You're meant to try and get up and leave. And so you could die in that fire, but your mobile phone is your priority. And the fact of the matter is, is that what we expect when we expect women to leave or young women to choose a different path is we expect them to pick up everything they've ne- you know, leave in a sudden and emergent situation, leave everything that they've ever owned, sometimes even their children. And you wouldn't even leave your mobile phone when the fire alarm was going off. So how can you expect people to just walk away? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that people think that, but like I say, it's to protect themselves. Yeah. So the book, Every Woman, 
Um, it's gone huge. I know it's been out for a while now, but it's always on my Twitter. Always someone. Ah, always, I I'm stalked by your book, actually. <laughs> um, always positive things from what I can see, although I do have mostly left wing people on my Twitter. I know, yeah, we, we create our own bubbles, don't <laughs> yeah, we? <laughs> yeah, I have my safe space. <laughs> Um, so was it fun to read? Uh, to read? You did not read it. Did, <laughs> was it fun to write it, or um, was it a little bit harrowing in places? What was the experience like? No, I mean I didn't find it difficult to to write. Um, I thought it would be much more difficult. Um, there were, I think, the only chapter that I found difficult to sort of structure and write about and it was more guidance from the people who who were sort of publishing the book that I should include was stuff about my childhood just because I you know I had quite a nice childhood really um and um and but then when you actually when I mean nothing really terrible happened to me but when you start to sort of take away the layers and realize some of the things that happened to me as a young woman uh, and as a teenager were were not okay and I was I sort of used to sit around with my friends who I was friends with when I was teenage when I was a teenager when I was writing it and say oh do you remember this and we'd all be like god yeah that was terrible you know do you remember when this happened to so and so and do you remember when that happened to so and so and that so that was it was like remembering a whole load of things that I'd, I I basically I hadn't buried them or with trauma or anything I just you just sort of carry on with your life and forget about them um, so I, I found that uh, to be awakening in some regards, but um, no, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm a bit of a show off. I like talking about myself. What can I say? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that's okay. I think that what I'm trying to say in the book as well is that okay to say that you're good at something it's okay to think well, that you're good and say that you're good yeah that's another patriarchal thing where women feel like they can't talk about their accomplishments too much yeah we have to we have to sort of shrink and, and, and you know there is a difference between being big-headed and arrogant uh, and being just sure of your accomplishments they, they are two different things but I think it's okay to say you know I actually quite liked writing the book I thought it I was good at doing it and I found it um, relatively um, a simple task to do because I had a lot to say and my biggest skill in life is that I have a lot to say and I'm not I'm not afraid to say it um, and I think that that's okay to, to think you have good skills and to employ them. Yeah well becoming an author sounds like it was pretty much made for you with all your stories and yeah how I mean, easy you find that it now, once you've written one book it's like the difficult second album, isn't it? I've got to, uh, <laughs> I've now got to come up with another book, maybe, or maybe I'll just be an author of one book, and that'll be it. I don't we'll know. See. Isn't it like tattoos? And once you've got one, once you do, got you one. want to fill your whole body. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it is. I and I have a lot of tattoos for that reason. Um, and I, I, I thought about getting a new one the other day, and my husband was like, "No, don't, don't start that again." <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you've, you've cut yourself Don't off from that, that world. Now. You'll, you'll end up like the most tattooed woman in the world. Um, but uh, yeah, the uh, yeah, I think it maybe it is. Uh, and I feel now constantly like, oh my gosh, I should write that down, but I don't, and then I forget about it. And uh, you know, the people who I worked with, um, who published the book, and my book agent, they constantly are like, please just write it down, and I'm like. Oh, I haven't got time to write this down. <laughs> um, I am also very, very cautious of um, stories that aren't mine um, and telling other people's stories. I, Because I worked in Women's Aid for so many years, 
um, I have a, a very, very inbuilt um, sense of confidentiality um, that, I, you know, it would have cost people's lives where I used to work. So I am very, very, very cautious about using other people's stories uh, for my own ends. And every single story that was in the book was cleared with the people. And obviously they were anonymised, but they were, it was cleared with the people who um, it was about and with their support staff. Um yeah. Because it's it's so it is it can be quite difficult to do that. And also, I mean, uh, there was one review of my book where you only read nice things. You obviously don't read the Sunday Times. One review <laughs> was like that I didn't write enough about the story of my brother being a heroin addict, and that that, that could have been a whole book in itself. And you actually, you know, that's, that's a fair review. Story because, to tell them, yeah, yeah, that's a fair review because I could literally write a book. It would be um, it would have a lot more swearing in than the, the uh, one that I did write uh, about my brother. But it's not my story to tell. Yeah. My story to tell about. Um, my brother is how I felt about it but his story is his and uh, and I, I feel pre and I know lots of people don't feel like this about things but I, I, I think it was many years of working at Women's Aid that you know owning somebody and exploiting somebody's story whether they like, like it or not is is something that's quite difficult so and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do it I, I don't like it when people write representations of me that are wrong yeah yeah that is a tricky mm. area but yeah editorial guidelines and all that you've got to make sure that yeah yeah because you can ruin your life and ruin and there was one incident when I wrote my book um which was one story about one of my friends and you know, she she'd read it and everything, and everything. But when the book came out, she started to be like, "Oh, I feel a little bit nervous about this." And you know, we sort of did fall out for a little bit, and then we were fine. Mm -hmm. We're totally fine now. She's like my best friend, but um, she was just like, oh, "You know, actually, I didn't realise that I, it would it would feel as public as it feels." Yeah. Um, so, and it was actually a nice story about how she was brilliant, but she was just a bit like, "Oh, yeah," but I just feel like. It's weird. It's weird that I'm in it at all. She, she's fine with it now. But yeah, so you do have to be really careful when you're writing. And and the stories that I see in my office would make brilliant, brilliant, brilliant short stories. Some of them. <laughs> but I'm yeah. I don't even comment on newspaper stories really about cases unless I've been asked to explicitly go to the media. So the case I dealt with, I was dealing with a case of a refugee that had fallen in last week. And lots of newspapers got in touch with me and said, oh, can you, can you let us know about this, that, and the other? And I was just like, do you know what? You can speak to the victims directly. I'm not going to... It's not for yeah. me to tell the story. It's, if they want to talk to you, they will. Yeah. It is um, slightly weird to start becoming, like, almost accidentally in the public eye because after that panel, I had absolutely tons of newspapers and magazines wanting to interview me. Yeah. And it made me feel really weird and perhaps I can relate to the people that you were sort of bringing uh, into your book because... Um, it made me feel like I was becoming famous for something that had happened to me because I didn't want, and I didn't want that to happen to me. Uh, it was very yeah. weird, and I had people at the Daily Mail emailing me, and they wouldn't let me see the print before it went to the yeah. press. And I was like, "You can piss off." Yeah, you can piss <laughs> off. I mean, that is the that is the right thing for you to say. You yeah. can piss off because whilst we should line up our platforms and and use our voices, actually using your own voice, writing your own thing is always going to be the yeah. most authentic version of you. And that is hard. And it is hard because, you know, everybody likes a bit of attention. Yeah. <laughs> attention is nice, you know. Everybody likes a bit of attention. But 
you know, it's, it's how they're going to tell that story. Yeah. It's difficult. It's difficult. So you made the right decision. And I think the element with um, your brother in the book as well, it's sort of like if you'd have gone into it too much or, like you said, wrote, wrote a book on just that, yeah. there's that element of diversity becoming completely non-diversity because you're speaking over the yeah. person with the story. And also, it was a book about women. I was like that. I mean, honestly, my whole blinking life has been dominated man. by <laughs> bloody Luke. He, he can sit on the back burner for a bit. Um, I mean, to be fair, there is one person who wouldn't give a toss, no matter what I wrote about him, because I think he thinks I, he deserves it, is my brother. He's just like, yeah, I, I sent him all the text before um, it even went to the first stage of the editorial. And he, I don't even think he read it. He was like, Jess, I've got no leg to stand on. <laughs> you can write whatever you like. <laughs> you can write that I'm a monster if you want. It doesn't matter. Um, because, you know, he's self-aware. <laughs> if nothing else. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, um, for my last question, just for everyone at home who's listening slash reading. So, so, what would be your key suggestion to someone without platforms who wants to contribute to the fight for equality and... So I mean, you'd, I mean, everybody, everybody has a platform now, um, and there are people like me or like big, um, you know, there are big movements now around equality and feminism that people can get involved with, and in every locality there will be, whether it's a local Labour Party, a local women's forum, um, there, there will be something or nationally that you can get involved with. So all of the stuff that pe- people t- sharing their stories, sharing just a simple tweet, um, like the refugee, the refuge women who who they're just eight women whose roof had fallen in last week they just put one thing on Facebook and it went completely viral with lots and lots of people helping them and their Mm. story gets told so don't think that you don't have a platform you definitely do and if you're a young person um, you you and you are at college, university, school. You you have an audience of people um, who might be interested. So just start talking. The the hardest thing is the first thing you ever try and organise where one person turns up. But that has happened to me. Um, so that's you one. Know, that's <laughs> one person that you get to exactly. Influence. And then the next time three people come. You know, I've door knocked on my own because I've said, let's go out and, you know, really care about this thing that's closing down. And I say, we're meeting here and I turn up and it's just me. And I knock the doors and I talk to people. Um, but the next time someone else will come or one of the people I met when I was door knocking myself, that's a really nice thing. I'll come out with you. I'll come and do the next few houses. You know, so it start small and don't be afraid of failure in trying to get involved or launch campaigns and there, like I said there are big national um, petitions and big national marches and things we are in a time of sort of agitation so there is a lot of stuff that you can get involved with if you don't feel confident enough to be the leading voice on something but you, you know now we all have so many platforms make a YouTube video I mean don't do a makeup tutorial who cares about your high <laughs> lighting i don't even know what it is um and do you know do the thing stand up and say what you think and if you think that highlighting is brilliant and it's a makeup tutorial you want to do do that but make sure your voice gets heard um and there is there is lots and lots and lots of ways of doing that nowadays yeah that's very true you can set up a blog in 15 minutes yeah exactly 
I mean, that never existed when I was... The internet didn't exist when I was a teenager, so, uh, yeah. you know, and I'm actually quite pleased about that, I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm quite glad. That the sort it definitely of, has its benefits. And its yeah. Benefits. Some of the things I got up to when I was a teenager, I do not wish to remember them. <laughs> via the medium of a Facebook memory. Oh, yes. you did this 15 years ago. Great. I don't want to be reminded. Time hops evil. Here's a picture of you and your ex from four years ago. Yeah, Cheers. exactly. Here you are. Here's a picture and of you when you were thinner. that's basically what Facebook is for, <laughs> stalking your exes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's like an app to stop you from doing that now. That's how ridiculous social media is. My husband once tried to invent like a mouse that would monitor your hormones. So if you were pregnant, wouldn't allow you to go on the computer and look up all the tiny things that could be wrong with you. Uh-huh. So when you're a pregnant woman, you just spend the entire time Googling, I've got an itchy head, does this mean that, you know, <laughs> uh, the baby's coming early? And I spent my entire time obsessing on like NHS choices about whether my baby was the size of a peanut or a lime. Uh, and my husband was like, you shouldn't be allowed to use the internet, you're being driven mad. Yeah, it sounds a bit harsh, but maybe pregnant women should be disbanded <laughs> from internet access. Yeah, just limited, <laughs> limited internet access, but just like relaxing and nice things. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for doing this with me. It's been really fun. Totally my pleasure. You've made me miss the West Midlands a bit with your accent. <laughs> Yay, uh, I can't wait. Midlands. I can't wait to play this uh, episode to my flatmates because they think that I have a really thick Brummie accent. So, <laughs> like, you wait until you hear Jeff. <laughs> Well, I was at this festival at the weekend and it was in, like, Oxfordshire and everybody would seem to be from London. And uh, my son seems to have come away with a home county's accent. So I was like, I'll stop talking like that. Yeah. Oh, I went home for the summer and um, I accidentally said plant, like, with a long A, <laughs> and my boyfriend didn't let it go for, like, three months. I mean, that is, ab- that is abominable. Yeah. <laughs> I know. He should have broke up with me. <laughs> he clearly has no standards. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah, my husband would make me sleep outside if I did that. That's fair. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 